1: Come what me? That the word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is.
0: And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. First John 2, verses five and six say this. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, those verses, of course, are laying down the truth about who a Christian ought to be. If we claim to be in Christ Jesus, then we ought to be like him and keep his commandments. Ephesians 5, one says it this way, be imitators of God, therefore, as beloved children. But how is it that we become more like Jesus day by day and see him formed in us as Paul references in Galatians. Is this the work of God? Is this the work of Us, it is a very confusing subject sometimes for a lot of us, but most importantly, is it possible for us to be more like Jesus? We're going to explore these important questions today with Brian Hedges. Brian is lead pastor of Redeemer Church in Niles, Michigan and author of the book we'll be discussing, To Be Like Jesus, 40 Meditations for Your Journey Toward Christlikeness. And Brian, it's great to talk to you again. How are you?
1: I'm good. Thanks for having me back, Janet.
0: Sure thing. All right. Here's a basic question just to begin, because I have heard various versions of this particular question. If we are sinners saved by grace alone, why is it necessary to be like Jesus? And I I mean, I know the answer to this, but I'm curious. (laughs) I'm curious to hear what you might say to somebody who says, if I'm saved by grace alone, why do I have to imitate Jesus?
1: Well, the first place my mind goes is Romans chapter 8, verse 29, which says that God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. And there are many other passages, of course, you've already referenced 1 John, that talked about imitating Christ or walking as He walked. Uh, This is God's plan. Uh, What God saves us for is not only to forgive us of our sins and free us from sin's penalty and curse, but also to free us from the power of sin and to make us— into his image bearers, like his son Jesus.
0: Wonderful. So now when we are going back to the beginning, which we always have to do when we are considering things in the broader context of scripture, going back to creation, as you do in your book, we read that God created us in his image. How does that fit into this necessity of being like Jesus further on down the road of redemption?
1: Scripture in the New Testament often talks about our salvation in terms of the restoration of the image of God. I think it's in Ephesians chapter 4 that talks about being created um, or, or being, trying to remember the wording that's used, but renewed after the image of God in knowledge and in holiness. Mm-hmm. I may not be quoting that quite right, but there are many passages like that, um, 2 Corinthians Chapter 3, verse 18 talks about uh, becoming more like Christ, and as we behold the glory of the Lord, you know, we are transformed by the Spirit of the Lord, and we begin to bear His image. So this is God's plan. It's, It's part of the restoration of fallen human beings so that we bear His image as He originally intended us to do.
0: Right. So how do we look at our sin as we look back as those who are now in Christ Jesus? Of course, there's always that struggle between the old man and the new man in Jesus Christ. How do, sure. we, how do we see our sin, though, would you say, in a Godward way, as you put it?
1: Well, when we see that our sin is first and foremost against God himself, uh, when we sin, we're always sinning against him. Um, in Scripture, defines sin in this way. Right, all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. We think about David in his prayer in Psalm fifty-one. He says, "Against you and you only have I sinned, and none what is evil in your sight." So, yeah. sin is always first and foremost a an act of rebellion against God, or a transgression of God's law, or a failure to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so I think when when a Christian begins to understand what sin is, not just an infraction of some arbitrary rule, but it's actually going against the grain, the moral grain of the universe, it's going against the very will of God and the purpose for which He created us, uh, that reframes sin in a more Godward way, and we see that sin is a sin against a person. It's a sin against God Himself. Yes. Uh, it it frames sin in a more relational context in relationship to God.
0: Right. Well, and one of the greatest frustrations we see Paul delineating in Romans chapter seven, which is that which I don't want to do, I end up doing, and the things I do want to do, I don't end up doing. There is this struggle against sin for all of life, even if you are a Christian. I know there are some people who say, you can be finally set free from all sin and you'll never sin again. And what we know anecdotally, that's not true. Um, But we also know from scripture that not true and when you talk about Romans 8 before when you were talking about the verse uh, verse 29 for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son there is some question about the degree to which we are conformed to Christ while we are on this earth and there's debate about how far you can get in your sanctification how do you think we ought to understand this process of sanctification from God's perspective what it is all about
1: well you already said a key word so the key word is it's a process. It's a journey. It's not something we arrive at all at once. And it is a matter of degree. And, you know, it's interesting. I think when I read some of the older writers, uh, the guys I like to read are guys like Spurgeon and Calvin and people like that. Yeah. When I read Spurgeon talking about this struggle between flesh and spirits and old man and new man and uh, the Christian's relationship with sin. He tends to emphasize that the, the earnest desire of the believer is to be as much like Christ as he can can be, and, and he will acknowledge that we do not become sinlessly perfect. But then in the same breath, he'll say, but we ought to want that. We ought to want perfection. We want to be more like uh, the Lord Jesus. And so... You know, I don't know to what degree we can be sanctified. I'm sure that I can be sanctified much more than I am, (laughs) and most of the Christians I know are in this process, Uh, but I think we should all be earnestly striving for that, and we should be looking for that and longing for that, and try to understand, how does that process then work?
0: Right, so when we're reading verses like "Be therefore holy, as I am holy," that can be a verse that sometimes Christians will look at with despair, because I'll, I mean, I could say this for myself: I'm far from being holy. I'm holy in Jesus Christ because of what He did for me, but in and of myself, I, I, you know, my fil- my righteousness is as dirty rags as Isaiah discussed in chapter six. So, right. what what do we do with that whole notion of? I am called to be holy, but in reality, I can't get there in this lifetime. And that is frustrating to me.
1: Yeah, well, it is a matter of degree. Uh, so I, let me paraphrase another old author. So John Newton, famous author of Amazing Grace, yep. you know, he he was saved out of a very terrible lifestyle. He was a slave trader and called himself, you know, this, the blasphemer and a very immoral life. And late in his life, he said something to this effect. He said, I'm not what I ought to be, I'm not what I could be, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. I'm not what I once was, and I am what I am. And I think every Christian can say that. We can look back and we can say, something changed. When I met Jesus Christ, something changed. And I'm not what I once was. And yet at the same time, we acknowledge that our ongoing struggles with sin, that remains our burden. And we all feel that. We all sometimes find ourselves in Romans 7 and saying, Oh, wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death. So it is a matter of degree. Um, Some change has taken place, and I think that happens as soon as someone becomes a Christian and the old things pass away and all things become new. We are new creations in Jesus Christ. And yet we know that we are still waiting for final glorification and the complete removal of sin in every way.
0: Well, right. And and that's that's a key point when you talk about glorification, because that's the end of the road for us on earth. Right. When we're finally glorified, and that's the end of the progress and the process of sanctification. Now, one thing I want to get into when we come back from this break, Brian, is the issue of how the work of sanctification takes place, because there is some confusion on this. There are people who will read certain verses in Scripture and say, this is all the work of God, and other people who will say, well, wait a minute, there is a a role that I am to play in my own sanctification. We're gonna get some answers on that when we come back. Pastor Brian Hedges, his book is called To Be Like Jesus. We'll return after this on Janet Buffer today.
1: From Affirm Films comes the Kendrick Brothers' Show Me the Father. The creators of War Room and Courageous take moviegoers on a cinematic journey that invites you to think differently about your earthly father and how you relate to God through five true stories.
0: I'm stunned. He's real. He's really out there. And this is really him. This is really him.
1: Show Me the Father. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. In theaters September 10th. More information is available at showmethefathermovie.com.
0: Ask yourself, what do you pay for health care? Are you single? Do you pay more than $199 a month? Are you a couple? Do you pay more than $299 a month? Do you have a family? Do you pay more than $399 a month? Yes, you can serve the entire family with healthcare for only $399 a month with Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a non-profit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses, and in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals. Sign up at any time of the year. Pick your own doctor and hospital. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org/jmt. That's libertyhealthshare.org/jmt or call now 855 855- 565 that's eight five 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 six five twenty five sixty one, or libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt if you're looking for adventure serving as a volunteer on the mercy ship is an adventure like no other and you'll be serving on the largest
1: non-governmental hospital ship in the world providing free care to some of the world's poorest people Whether it's performing a surgery, cleaning the deck, or transporting a patient to a recovery center, every day you'll be making a difference in the lives of struggling people. Begin your adventure today. Connect with us at MercyShips.org. It's an adventure of a lifetime. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet.
0: Well, for any of us who have been Christians for any length of time, there is always that daily desire that we feel to become more like Jesus Christ every single day. And the Bible talks a lot about it. We discuss this process of sanctification, sometimes with great delight and sometimes with a little bit of despair, because we are striving to be what is so hard to achieve. And in fact, without Christ, impossible to achieve at all. And that is to be like our Savior. Brian Hedges is with us. His book is called To Be Like Jesus, for Meditations for Your Journey Toward Christlikeness. And in this discussion of sanctification, Brian, this is interesting. Many people are a little confused on this point. They'll say, all right, well, my justification and the propitiation was achieved by God. That's the work of God. Whose work is sanctification? Because that seems to be some of God, some of me. How am I to understand it?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, Janet. And I understand that confusion. I remember early in my Christian life having a lot of those same questions and feeling pretty frustrated with some of the teaching that I was hearing that was still leaving me confused. Yeah. Uh, if I could just go to one verse that I think is really clear and sheds light on this, it is Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, really, so two verses. Uh, Paul says, therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So that verse, I, I know you're familiar with this, but that verse presents, I think, both sides of the equation. We have a responsibility to work something out, but we can only do that as we are empowered by God. So if someone asks very directly, whose responsibility is it Um, when it comes to sanctification, I want to say it's both. Mm -hmm. And it's not 50% God's work and 50% mine. It is 100% the work of God and His grace, the work of His Spirit in my heart and in my life, but it involves me and my choices and my actions and my affections. It involves me 100% as well.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's a good way to that's a really good distinction and that's an important point to make so people don't say, "Well, I've done 50%, Lord, if I'm not there yet, it's your fault." I mean, that's the, you have to throw that out the window. That's not how it goes. But, you know, right. yeah, and and understanding sanctification, if you look up some of the verses throughout scripture on the subject of sanctification, there can also be a little confusion about where we are on that timeline. For example, you look at Hebrews 10:10. 10, 10, And it talks about the fact that we have been sanctified. And by that, will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all? Then it says we are being sanctified in Hebrews 10, 14 is in the present tense. So how do we understand these different verb tenses of sanctification that we have been sanctified? We will be sanctified. We are being sanctified. How do we understand those in context and what they mean in our lives?
1: Yeah, that's another good question. Uh, So theologians distinguish between two aspects of sanctification. One aspect is what we might call definitive or positional sanctification. And there's a very real sense that as soon as someone is in Christ, they are sanctified, uh, just as much as they are justified and they are regenerated and they are adopted into the family of God. And in that sense, the sanctification really refers to a change in our status, where we have been set apart for God, and we now belong to Him, and that's what you know the word sanctified means. It right. means to be set apart. So the word holy means to be set apart for God. The other dimension to sanctification is what we might call progressive sanctification, and that's the that's the ongoing outworking of sanctification in our lives. In one illustration that I've used for this at times is of marriage. Uh, So August 17th, 1996 is when I married my wonderful wife, Holly. It's almost 25 years. And the minute that we said I do and the preacher said, I now pronounce you man and wife, our status changed to married. But I've spent 25 years trying to figure out how to be a husband and what it means to actually live out those vows that we made and that commitment. I'm no less married now and no more married now than I was 25 years ago as soon as our legal status changed. Something definitive took place. But the actual understanding and outworking of that and the fleshing of that out in daily life, that's certainly different now than it was 25 years ago. And I think something is similar in the life of the Christian. As soon as someone is in Christ, they are sanctified. And yet there is this progressive outworking of the implications of that for the rest of our lives.
0: That's a really good analogy. So when we are pursuing Christlikeness and we are really doing our level best to obey the Lord and to honor Him and to pursue godliness, on a practical level, what is necessary to grow in our Christlikeness? For example, how do I make practical progress in putting off my sin and putting on Jesus Christ in my daily life, in the things that I do every day. So I know specifically if I'm moving in the right direction or if I'm moving in the wrong direction.
1: Yeah. I I mean, there's lots of ways to answer that question. Uh, Let me just, let me say a couple of things. First of all, I think it's using the means that God has given us for our growth and for our sanctification So the means of grace, and specifically the Word of God, prayer, we need to be meditating on the Word, reading the Word, we need to be praying, talking to God, public worship, we need to be gathering with the people of God and helping one another. Scripture talks about exhorting one another and admonishing one another. So these are means that God has given to help us mature, to help us grow, uh, to, to lead us to repentance when we've sinned and to help us grow in faith so we need those means of grace okay. and then uh, the second thing and this is kind of a, a subset of the means of grace uh, i sometimes talk to our church about keeping short sin accounts with god hmm. uh, and practicing repentance and confession of sin so uh, the reality is that we all do still fail and we sin but there's a big difference between the christian who sins you know a careless word or a wrong thoughts or conscious of wrong motives or a slip up of some kind, recognizes that, confesses it, and repents. There's a big difference between that and someone who builds an entire habit and then a lifestyle of unrepentant sin. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. sanctification, I think, takes place when we're keeping those short accounts. We are quickly repenting, confessing what we know to be sin, and we're maintaining close fellowship with the Lord and that's really the key thing yeah. more than anything else is that we are in the presence
0: of God for sure that's really good advice what about those besetting sins uh, those sins that you just can't seem to break the hold in your life of it, the temptation comes back you give in again whether it's speaking in a certain way or acting in a certain way or or having some kind of you know terrible thoughts in one or another direction you know there are all sorts of things that any Christian could point to as a besetting sin, sure. and they can be very discouraging because your desire is to obey Christ, and yet you, you just can't seem to get rid of that particular sin. Well, what sort of advice would you give to the Christian in that state?
1: I would say that those, those sins, as long as they remain with us, I, I think God actually has good purposes for allowing us to continue to struggle and one of those purposes is to keep us humble, hmm. and dependent on him. And another, I think, is to build compassion in our hearts so that we are, we are compassionate and kind to other Christians who also struggle. Uh, there's another great old writer, uh, one of the Puritans named William Bridge, who wrote a book called A Lifting Up for the Downcast. Yes. And there's a chapter in his book where he talks about those who are downcast or discouraged because of great sins. And essentially what he says in that chapter is that your sins should not cause you to be discouraged, but they should cause you to be humbled. Uh, but, but don't despair, because uh, the very sins that you've committed show you your need for Christ, and if you'll turn to Christ, we'll forgive you. Uh, but you certainly should be humbled and recognize the great need that you have for God's grace and for His mercy. I think that's good advice.
0: That is I good advice. That, uh, yeah,
1: I think that if we will take it, you know, that will help us.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, that's very encouraging. I also you address the issue of not just committing less sin necessarily, although that's important, but also addressing the weakening of the sins hold in my life. How, again, do you address that, that that sin has this hold on me, what is the remedy for it? Of course, Jesus Christ and his cross, but in practical terms, what do you tell a Christian to do who says, I don't want to just stop, I want to stop wanting to do this sin?
1: Yeah. Well, sin is a parasite, and it feeds off of something. And, you know, Paul in Romans 13, he says, make no provision for the flesh, to fulfill its desires, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. So there is this one-two punch. It's You quit feeding sin. You quit making opportunity for it. You quit giving it an opportunity by making provision. And then you're also replacing it, and you're replacing it with Christ and with these means of grace and so on. Um, so I think when someone feels that sin has a hold on them, that what they mean by that is that, their their affections and their desires are still entangled. And that's probably because they're making provision in some way. Yeah. And so sometimes we need a, a pretty radical withdrawal from, hmm. you know, maybe it's media. I mean, so someone's struggling with envy. One of the first things I would say is how much time are you spending on Facebook? Yeah. Because if you're living your life comparing you know, your vacations with everybody else's and your family with everybody else's. And you say everybody put their best face forward on Facebook and, You're comparing (laughs) your life with it. Of course, you're going to struggle with envy. So maybe you need a social media fan.
0: Hey, that's always a good example. Yeah, that's (laughs) always a good idea. Ignore the TikTok influencers. You don't need them. Such a good book to be like Jesus. Pastor Brian Hedges with us. Always good to talk to you, Brian. Wonderful book. And it was so great to have you here again. Thank you so much. Thank you, Janet. All right. You bet. God bless you. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Mefford Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com.
1: This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet
0: Mefford. You know, John chapter three talks about the new birth. It's that famous story of Nicodemus speaking with the Lord Jesus. And Nicodemus asks Jesus, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? This is in response to the Lord saying, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So this is a very famous passage. We understand that the phrase people often use, born again Christian has a certain meaning that most people don't understand. This was popularized in the secular culture quite a bit back when Jimmy Carter came out on the scene and they started talking about born again Christians, which is an oxymoron if you think about it. There's no kind of Christian who isn't born again. So, you you know, it's not really necessary to put born again in front of Christian. You have to be born again in order to be a Christian. So I give this as a little bit of background going into this story. This is just amazing to me. Every time I come across some poll showing what's going on in Christendom that is just depressing. I always think this has to be the bottom wrong. No, it never is. This is via the Christian Post. More than 60% of born-again Christians in America between the ages of 18 and 39 believe that Buddha, Muhammad, and Jesus are all valid paths to salvation. And over 30% say they either believe that Jesus sinned just like other people when he lived on earth or aren't sure Unbelievable, there's a striking decline in evangelical religious beliefs and practices over the past 10 years as the number of self-proclaimed believers to hold these beliefs has increased by nearly 25%. This is from a statement via Probe Ministries talking about the results of its Religious Views and Practices survey. This was a study interviewing 3,100 Americans between the ages of 18 and 55 in 2020, looking at various other previous studies they see the study saw a drop in basic biblical worldview from 47% in 2010 to 25% in 2020 among born-again Christians. That is pathetic. The drop in the expanded biblical worldview with things like beliefs about Satan and morals went from 32% in 2010 to 16% in 2020. 50% fall off in 10 years on expanded biblical worldview. So how how are we doing in our churches, instructing the saints and preaching expositionally through the Bible and teaching Christians, discipling Christians, getting them into the word of God, having Bible studies that are deeper than an inch? How are we doing on that score? It doesn't look like we're doing very well. This is crazy. It says the study The percentage of born-again Christians with a biblical worldview of either type, the study says, has been cut in half over the last decade. This result is a startling degradation in worldview beliefs of born-again Christians over just 10 years. Well, let me go out on a limb and say, why would you assume that they're born again? (laughs) Isn't the spirit that cries out, Jesus is Lord? How in the world can a Christian who says Jesus is Lord go, yeah, but maybe Buddha can do the same thing. Maybe Muhammad. You have to be so not just ignorant of other religions, but you have to be completely I don't know. What's the word to say? How in the world can you be born again? I'm not denying that if you are a young Christian, a new Christian, you might not have all of your theology sorted out yet. And by the way, there are an awful lot of Christians who are still baby Christians three or four decades after they've come to know the Lord. That's on them for not studying the word of God and not becoming more mature in Christ and wanting to know the Lord more deeply and having fellowship with him and obeying him and becoming more mature in the faith. But it's just not the thing these days in American Christianity to become a mature Christian. It's just not. Because we want to go to church and we want to be entertained. We want the coolest music and the most awesome gym shoes on our pastors. And we want to have the most comfortable stadium seats. And we want the coolest conferences with the biggest names. And boy, are we paying the price, aren't we? Are we paying the price or what? I I thought this was very interesting. I'm going to talk a little bit today about Deuteronomy chapter 28 because I've been doing a lot of reading on this. Deuteronomy chapter 28 is a very, very key passage of scripture because when you go back to it, it has to do with Moses saying to the children of Israel, here's the deal, guys. If you obey the Lord, there will be blessing. And if you disobey the Lord, there will be cursing and you can go through and you can read all of the details on what God says about how he will Reward you if you obey him and he will curse you if you disobey him. And this, I think, plays into the larger story that we've been discussing over the last year and a half in particular about God's judgment on the United States. And there's just no doubt about it. If you go back and you read some of the details, for example, in Peter Marshall's work, The Light and the Glory, you'll read a lot about all the times that, you know, the the original foundation of the United States built upon those who got on the Mayflower and came over here and the establishment of the Mayflower And then different periods in American history saw people falling away from the Lord and the Lord dealt with them. And there are a lot of instances of that, but none like what we're living through. So Deuteronomy 28 comes up in actually a sermon that was preached in 1989 by David Wilkerson. It's kind of interesting. It's called The Last Days of America. But he talks about the passage that I just mentioned, Deuteronomy 28. Now, we are not the nation of Israel, as at least if you're not a Jewish believer in Jesus. If you're a Gentile, which most of us probably are who are interacting and listening today, if you're a Gentile, you've been grafted in. And so you are part of Christ's church by faith. And that's a wonderful thing. But it is true that God expects us to obey him. And that's not very popular right now. The pursuit of holiness, the pursuit of godliness, uh, and attention to detail when it comes to our obedience. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. This is what Jesus said. That's just not a popular message right now. It's, it's all of messy grace. Whatever I do, the Lord loves to forgive me. And so I can do anything and it doesn't separate me from his love. That is cheap grace, That's cheap grace, and I would actually argue that you shouldn't be so sure you're in the faith if that's the attitude that you have. And it doesn't have anything to do with legalism. It has to do with understanding That if you don't have good works, that can indicate that you don't have true faith. It's not that your works will earn you a spot in heaven. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with fruit bearing. And it has to do with being in Jesus Christ. And he is the vine and we are the branches. Apart from him, we can do nothing. But if we are producing fruit, it shows that the tree is good. If you're not producing any fruit, it shows that the tree is bad. Goes back to some of these basic principles in scripture. So Wilkerson talks about Deuteronomy 28 and how... Daniel, being a student of the word, came to understand the captivity of Israel in Babylon by reading these writings of the previous prophets. And from their prophecies, he calculated the end of the captivity, the time the Messiah would come, how long he would live and when he would die. And he references Daniel 9-2, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet. He goes on to say, Daniel listed all the terrible things that were happening to God's people in his day. He compared it all With Deuteronomy 28 and concluded, quote, The curse is poured upon us and the oath that is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, because we have sinned against him, as it is written in the laws of Moses, all this evil is come upon us for we obeyed not his voice. And Wilkerson says any God fearing, praying Christian can do as Daniel did. Beloved compared to the scriptures, what we are seeing happening right before our eyes. And you will know beyond any doubt that America is even now under the fury of God's curse for disobedience. Now, keep in mind, this was back in 1989, so over 30 years ago. How much worse is it now? When he goes back to Deuteronomy 28, he says, Moses listed there all the signs of the curse. We need to be reminded of these dreadful signs which shall come to pass if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe to do all his commandments. That's from Deuteronomy 28, 15. And he goes on to list 12 of the fearful curses here. It's going to really stun you to see how many of the plagues, the curses, I should say, listed in Deuteronomy 28 are very familiar sounding, including number 10, which is the loss of an entire generation of of youth. We're going to come back to this. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. Don't go away. This is Janet Mefford for Preborn. Candace talks about finding out she was pregnant. Thankfully, an ultrasound provided by Preborn allowed her to hear her baby's heartbeat.
1: The sonogram sealed the deal for me. My baby was like this tiny little spectrum of hope, and I saw his heart beating on the screen. And knowing that there's life growing inside, I mean, that sonogram changed my life. I went from just Candace to Mom, thank you to everybody that has given these gifts.
0: You guys are giving more than money. You guys are giving love. Would you make a leadership gift and sponsor a machine today? These life-saving machines cost more than most centers can afford. Your tax-deductible gift of $15,000 will place a machine in a needy women's center and save countless lives for years to come. All gifts are tax-deductible. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Ask yourself, what do you pay for health care? Are you single? Do you pay more than $199? dollars a month? Are you a couple? Do you pay more than $299 a month? Do you have a family? Do you pay more than $399 a month? Yes, you can serve the entire family with healthcare for only $399 a month with Liberty HealthShare. Liberty Health Share is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals. Sign up at any time of the year. Pick your own doctor and hospital. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org/jmt. That's libertyhealthshare.org/jmt. Or call now, 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT.
1: You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet.
0: Well, it's very interesting to see the results of this Pro ministry study showing that 60% of born again Christians between the ages of 18 and 39 believe that Jesus, Muhammad, and Buddha are all valid paths to salvation. And more than 30% of them say they either believe Jesus sinned or they're not sure. Now, this is such a gigantic failure. On the part of our churches, you can talk about dead churches teaching theology, but the people are not born again and they don't know the Lord and they're not really saved. That's one problem. But at least they know the theology. When you have kids who were actually taught the word of God, heard the word of God, preached from the pulpit, went to Bible studies, went to Sunday school, had to memorize Bible verses, had to memorize Bible passages, you're at least getting the word into them. So when they hear something false, it'll ring a little bell and say, wait a minute, that's not right, that's not right, because I memorized this verse when I was 10. And then you can card out that verse and say it. That's one problem, if they don't really know the Lord, then it's a tragedy that they know all of this scripture, but they don't come to Jesus, that's a problem. But the flip side of that is people who are thoroughly convinced that they know the Lord, but they don't know his word, they've never studied it, and they're walking around espousing flat out heresy, And they're probably none the wiser or worse. They believe that even if they spout heresy, it doesn't really matter because I have a personal relationship with Jesus. You know, Paul said to Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely. Your life and your doctrine closely. It's both and, it's not either or. And it's like the old drunk man up on the horse falling off either side. One side is, you know, legalism. The other side is antinomianism. But you need to be very attentive to both of these things. So going back to Deuteronomy 28, I'm sharing from this TSC pulpit series website, which printed this 1989 sermon from David Wilkerson called The Last Days of America. And he talks about this important principle that the Lord laid out for the nation of Israel. And, and by the way, it, it goes through the whole Old Testament, which is, if you obey me, then I will bless you. And if you disobey me, then I will curse you. And it was very severe at times for Israel, as we know. So here are 12 signs of the curse that David Wilkerson outlines, which I think are helpful for us to consider in light of where this country is right now. I put together a blog post just recently on America gone insane and I really think that's not an overstatement. When we look at the leadership in our country, when we look at the moral sewer that we're all swimming in, maybe we're not participating in it, but we're watching it in real time when we're seeing the jettisoning of common sense and even reality when it comes to gender issues and, oh, you can't call it mother's milk anymore, the Breastfeeding Academy says, you have to call it parents' milk. And we all know that this is complete hooey. Nobody can nurse a baby except its mother, a woman who who is able to produce milk at any way. i I, got to get to this. So here's one of the curses that he mentions. A curse upon our cities. A curse upon our cities. Does that remind you of last summer and ongoing problems in our cities? I don't think New York is back to full health, do you? What about Portland? Seattle isn't doing so great. Los Angeles isn't exactly having a grand time. And Deuteronomy twenty eight sixteen says, cursed shalt thou be in the city and cursed shalt thou be in the field. How good are our cities right now? And it, it went before Black Lives Matter and Antifa and the progressive tyranny of COVID, violence and crime and people getting slaughtered in the streets of New York and attacked, unprovoked. We see it all the time. A curse upon our economy. Look at what's happening now. We are drowning in debt as a nation. It's completely unsustainable. Under the Biden administration, we're seeing all of this inflation. Not a good thing. Now, I'm not, not going to go through every... Single one of these 12 for lack of time, but let's go to another one. A curse upon our foreign negotiations. Hmm, does that sound familiar to you? Verses 19 and 20 Cursed shalt thou be when thou comest in, and cursed shalt thou be when thou goest out. The Lord shall send upon thee cursing, vexation, and rebuke in all that thou settest thine hand unto for to do because of the wickedness of thy doings. This curse, he says, will bring shame and embarrassment. Shame and embarrassment. He said U.S. foreign policy today, 1989, is in complete disarray. Well, what would David Wilkerson say about the year 2021? Upstaged. Our negotiators come home confused. Upstaged by Russia. Upstaged in China. We appear befuddled before the whole world. Is it looking kind of familiar, given what's going on in Afghanistan? Here's number five. Plagues of incurable illnesses. Hmm. The Lord shall make the pestilence cleave unto thee with a consumption and with a fever and with an inflammation. Huh. Can you think of any particular virus circulating right now? Maybe a different variant of the original virus that involves inflammation, fever, pestilence, sickness. That's verses 21 and 22. How about areas of drought? This is something addressed in verse 24. The Lord shall make the rain of thy land powder and dust from heaven. Shall it come down upon thee? We have thousands of wells going dry in California due to drought right now. The Dixie fire in California has spread to more than 725,000 acres. Do you know there's also drought in Minneapolis? Think about in Minneapolis. What do you think of when you think of Minneapolis right now? You think of anarchy? Not everybody in Minneapolis, but, oh, you got to defund the police. Oh, let's have the riots. Ooh, let's have the looting. Who says that's not the hand of the Lord? Do we really have to make excuses for the Lord when things are going wrong that, oh, he couldn't possibly be involved in it? Have you read the Old Testament? And I'm not saying every single thing that happens is God's direct judgment, but I'm kind of amending that looking at where we are now as a nation. Let's see another one. Insignificant enemies will put our armies to chase. Deuteronomy 28, 25 and 26, the Lord shall cause thee to be smitten before them and thy carcass shall be meat unto all fowls of the air. And he references Vietnam. Today we could reference Afghanistan. Insignificant enemies will put our armies to chase. Wow. Do you think the Taliban is going to allow Americans to flee from the airport? Oh, we have the American president. Oh, please, Taliban, let the Americans. Co- it's it's More than just a disgrace and an embarrassment and a debacle for the United States, I think it's a sign of judgment. There's an epidemic of divorce referenced in this passage. There's a wave of bankruptcies referenced in this passage. And here's the one I mentioned earlier, the loss of an entire generation of youth. Thy sons and thy daughters shall be given unto another people, and thine eyes shall look and fail with longing for them. That's verse 32. He says, today, a nation of adults supplied with all money and might can merely stand by and watch in horror as drugs and violence swallow up an entire population of youth. This scripture is a prophetic warning about the despair that falls upon parents in a nation under the curse. Verse 41, thou shalt beget sons and daughters, but thou shalt not enjoy them, for they shall go into captivity. When I go back to that study from Probe Ministries on this pathetic statistic that 60 percent of so-called born again Christians between the ages of 18 and 39 don't even have a basic grasp of what salvation through Jesus Christ even means we are losing our kids in the church and we have nobody to blame but ourselves let's let's just not sugarcoat this we have not obeyed the Lord have we As a church and individually, each one of us have to give an account to God. All of us do. I do. You do. We are responsible before the Lord to obey him. And to do what he has told us to do. But I I found this really good quote actually from Walter C. Kaiser Jr., who is an Old Testament professor, former president of Gordon Conwell Seminary. And in one of his books, he said, Possession of the word of God is no guarantee that men and women will respond to it. Israel had three types of leaders, each with a unique type of revelation from God the priests with the law, the prophets with the word of the Lord, and the wise men with wisdom. Yet they did little, if anything, To heal the wound of God's people. Most amazingly, that law, word, and wisdom failed to evoke any response from these leaders themselves, much less the people. They did not even blush when they heard the word, it had become a strictly external word and an intellectual exercise. Can you think of any Christian leaders or pastors today who might fit that description? They have the word. Oh, they can tell you the right theology, but it doesn't touch them. It doesn't touch them. I'm thinking, let's see, of a particular plagiarist at the head of the Southern Baptist Convention and all these so-called godly men who won't call him to repentance. You think these men are obeying the Lord? Do you think they will suffer at the hands of the Lord if they don't repent? We all will. I don't know what the Lord has planned for our nation But I see judgment all around us. And the remedy for that is that we, his people, repent of our lack of obedience and our lack of keeping Jesus as our first love, and we return to him, and we act as if we're Christians. Easier said than done sometimes, a la Romans 7, but that is our obligation as God's people. It has been from the beginning, and it makes a difference for the society at large if we don't take that calling seriously. If you bear the name of Christian, it goes back to Jesus's words, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? So convicting. I'm so convicted by that verse because I fall so short of obeying him. But boy, we have to be about obeying him. Deuteronomy 28 is just a clear call to us that it's time to wake up church and get serious about Jesus Christ. Thank you for being with us on Shannon Meffer today. We're out of time, but we will see you next time. Lord willing, thank you so much for tuning in and God bless.